0: Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stottmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. US immigration. Now there is a hot topic. But what if we stopped yelling and looked at it from an environmental view? My guest is Dr. Philip Cafaro of Colorado State University. He's a progressive activist an environmental ethicist and author of a great book, How Many is Too Many? The Progressive Argument for Reducing Immigration into the United States. Phil Caffaro takes a sane, humane look at how U.S. immigration has fluctuated over time and why continued mass immigration harms the environment and drives economic inequality. What are our options for helping poor people and saving our natural systems? I love your book, How Many is Too Many. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's it's so clear. It's so humane. And um, (laughs) let's talk about it. Now, you're a philosopher and an environmental ethicist, and you teach at Colorado State and you're a specialist in Thoreau right?
1: That's right yeah my uh, my um, PhD was written on Thoreau's ethics and that was my first book as well.
0: And you've also edited a book with Eileen Christ?
1: Living on the Edge yeah that was a a collection of essays by uh, environmentalists and academics uh, people who really wanted to tackle population issues so uh, that was a collection that came out in 2012.
0: Now any discussion of population often gets demonized, um, but uh, you've taken it head on and you're you're taking on the primary driver of population in the United States, which is immigration. First I'd like you to describe your own political orientation if you would.
1: Sure, Um, I'm a lifelong Democrat, a lifelong progressive Democrat. I've been involved uh, at various levels, Advocating policies and trying to get good progressives elected to state legislatures, to to city councils, and uh, on on federal campaigns as well. So I have, I have 30 years of work as a, uh, in progressive politics, um, as a progressive. I, I mean, people define these things differently. For me, right. the the key to political progressivism to me is really two things: one, a commitment to um, greater economic equality. Uh, that's, that's probably my, my core issue. And then along with that, um, an attempt to create ecologically sustainable societies. So, you know, that's what that's what my passions have been and that's what I've sort of built my, my work around over the years.
0: And you say in your book that you're aiming to show that the combination of political progressivism And reduced immigration is not odd at all. You say, in fact, it makes more sense than liberals' typical embrace of mass immigration. Now, since you wrote this book, um, we have been dealing with a (laughs) White House (laughs) where, where immigrants are demonized, immigration is demonized. Uh, and people are fighting back because they sense this is a racial issue. That is not what we're talking about today, right?
1: Right. And and I think it's it's a way to really it's a way of talking about things that should be avoided. Uh, it it doesn't get us to the real issues, as far as I'm concerned. And and uh, you know I've been really disturbed to see the way Trump brought up immigration, basically got elected. Uh, for, I think because he he. Um, Took a very hard stand against immigration, and in the process, demonized immigrants quite often. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that's the way for us to go. I, I don't think it's right, and um, but I also think it it's it's a function of progressives failing to talk about the issue in in ways that are honest and in ways that um, that respect working class people out there. Uh, it's just a fact that any immigration policy is gonna have trade-offs, it's gonna have winners and losers. When, when you advocate for a very expansive immigration policy, as the Democratic Party has done in recent years, uh, at a minimum, you, you have to be honest with people and you have to say, well, look, <laughs> this, is, this is not just gonna be a win-win for everybody. There are gonna be costs right. to it and, and we recognize that.
0: And in your book, you what one thing I love about it is that you do speak for members of our world who who can't speak for themselves, and that's wild nature, our biosystems on which we all depend, and and who have a right to exist, and also for the poor in this country who really, very often don't get a voice, um, and the case that you build. Uh, focuses on the history of immigration in the U.S. There are a lot of things in there I sure didn't know. Economic alternatives to a perpetual growth economy and demographics and how those should inform immigration policies, not just knee-jerk reactions. In your book, you interviewed people who were illegal immigrants about their conditions in their home countries, what made them emigrate, with native-born business owners in your area in Colorado who were affected by mass immigration. How did that inform the conclusions to which you were coming?
1: Well, I had sort of started the book uh, with some ideas about, about how I thought the issues were playing out and, and what I thought the important aspects were. Um, so I, I had an, an analysis of the situation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that informs the book. Uh, but I also wanted to hear what other people thought about the issue. I wanted to get get people's stories, both immigrants and and people who were competing with immigrants, people who were hiring immigrants, and that was one of the best parts of doing the project: is just to to talk to people and and to get a sense that that yes, these are real issues and they're impacting people, and and also to get a sense of how much how much honesty there was in discussing the issue. Just among regular people. And, and that's, in, that's in stark contrast to how it's often discussed uh, either in the media or by politicians. So, you know, just to give an example, um, when I would talk to immigrants about their goals and their experiences, they would often say, well, yeah, you know, by having a lot of immigrants, it, it does drive wages down in landscaping, it does drive wages down in roofing. And so they would acknowledge that. Uh, and similarly, when I talked to workers who felt uh, that they'd lost work or been displaced from jobs by immigrants, I, I honestly never heard people cursing immigrants or, or saying that immigrants were bad people. It was more just, yeah, you know, when, when people are in competition, some people are going to lose out. So in a way, that was very, very heartening to hear that, that people had an honest take on the issue. That's my sense. Now, when I went to talk to environmentalists about Mm. some of these issues, I I often got a little bit of a different take on it, because I think environmentalists tend to be a little bit more intellectuals, and um, I think intellectuals can often spin out stories which help them avoid facts that they don't want to see. So, uh, you know, I heard a lot of environmentalists were sort of all over the map on these issues. A lot of them felt that the issues they cared about, preserving wild nature, keeping water in the rivers, uh, not getting too crowded, not getting too polluted, they saw direct connections between those goals and ending population growth in the United States. But a lot of environmentalists, uh, in contrast, found it, you know, told very sort of convoluted stories about how we could fix 101 other things so we didn't have to deal with population issues. So they were a little different than just talking to workers. Workers were sort of, okay, we get the deal, we understand how this works. Um, Environmentalists, a little more complexification of the issues.
0: And so they wanted to push for efficiencies in energy or what people eat or how, you know, smart development, is that what you're saying?
1: Smart development, smart growth. Uh, some of them had, uh, were great believers in techno fixes, you know, in a hundred yeah. years we'll have cars that get, you know, a thousand miles to the gallon or whatever. I mean, people had all kinds of different different ideas about this. And um, that's just, it's interesting. That's one of the ways that environmentalism has developed in this country. If you look at how people talked about environmental issues at the birth of the modern environmental movement, late 60s, early 70s, it was mm-hmm. it was quite often they had sort of very direct answers to serious problems. And one of their direct answers was, yeah, you know, we just can't keep adding more and more people. I think today environmentalists, like other folks on the left, often sort of have very complex answers uh, and, and plans for reforming the world when, um, when sometimes you just have to go for the simpler but more difficult answers. And, and in this case, you know, I think issues, uh, if, you're interested, if you're concerned about uh, suburban sprawl, for instance, there are all kinds of complicated aspects of tax policy, zoning policy, transportation policy that you want to try to improve and it makes sense to work on those kind of things. But to turn around and then say, oh, and by the way, we could just keep growing our population endlessly, but we'll be able to deal with sprawl through all these other things, well, it's just false, I think. You, you have to focus some of your attention on the simple aspects like just, just not growing our numbers.
0: Now, this is from your book, Excessive Immigration is Currently the Main Driver of U.S. Population Growth and a chief cause of sprawl, excessive resource use, stagnating wages, high unemployment, and growing economic inequality. And I'd like to move from that quote to Dr. Martin Luther King, his address on population when he got the Margaret Sanger Award back Uh. in the day. He says, there is no human circumstance more tragic than the persisting existence of a harmful harmful condition for which a remedy is readily available. Family planning to relate population to world resources is possible, practical, and necessary. Unlike plagues of the Dark Ages or contemporary diseases we do not yet understand the modern plague of overpopulation is soluble by means we have discovered and with resources we possess." And in that context he was talking about uh, family planning among people in the United States. But since po- our population um, policies in the U.S. have changed, as have the number of people who are coming into the country. And as you say, this is the primary driver. So it really should be the thing we're looking at, right?
1: Yeah, although I think we should also keep paying attention to people's access to family planning. That's that's still an issue. Oh, yeah. Um. And uh, in this country as well as elsewhere. But you know, when Dr. King, uh, I think he was giving that speech in sometime in the mid-60s, maybe early 60s, somewhere around there. And at that point, uh, most U.S. population growth was coming from relatively high birth rates. Um, mm-hmm. If you go back to...
0: Catholics.
1: Well, Catholics,
0: Catholics.
1: but also, also <laughs> Protestants. I mean, on average, women in the mid-1950s in the U.S. were having, on average, three and a half kids. So, uh, you know, just... just that alone is enough to ensure you a pretty rapid growth rate. Uh, at that time, we were only bringing in a couple hundred thousand immigrants into the U.S. Well, switch over to 30 years later or bring it up to today. And now Americans are, are having on average a little uh, right around two children per woman. So we're basically having enough kids to replace ourselves. But we are also bringing in uh, one and a quarter to one and a half million immigrants annually, and that now has become the main driver of American population growth. Uh, in the book, I actually developed some population projections to sort of yeah. show how uh, how important immigration is going to be in in driving future population numbers. So, uh, as I say in, in the book, if we continued with the current immigration regime, about one and a quarter million. Uh, annual immigration. We're gonna increase our population from a current, um, currently we're about 330 million, to 525 million by 2100. Wow. Now if we cut back immigration to the levels when Dr. King gave his speech in the mid 1960s to let's say a quarter million annually, we'd instead uh, grow our population to 380 million, hundreds of millions less, And we would stabilize that population. So um, immigration makes a huge difference in how many people are here.
0: One of the things that I found so interesting about your book is, you know, especially lately in, in the rhetoric, the political rhetoric that's been going around, people will say, oh, we're a nation of immigrants. We've always been a nation of immigrants yes, okay, but it hasn't been at the levels we're at now. So could we talk about our demographic history and how, you know, what ha- what changed when population influx has changed?
1: Sure. Um, people tend to think that, that we sort of had one policy or, or just one kind of level of immigration over the years. And actually, it's fluctuated quite a bit. Uh, if you look at let's say the first century of the history of the United States, we pretty much had a laissez-faire approach to immigration. If you could get here, we take you. And Mm -hmm. over that time, uh, it started, I mean, we had about three and a half million people in the United States for the first census in 1790. So we were a relatively small population. And then, uh, so we'd have a couple tens of thousands of people coming in each year. And then gradually over time, more and more people started to come in. And by 1880 or so, we were bringing in about 300,000 people annually. Well, right around then, you had the start of a, what was called the great wave of immigration. You had huge numbers of people, uh, including my swarthy ancestors from Italy and Greece, uh, coming in from, uh, from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe, primarily. And so between 1880 and and 1920, uh, immigration really ballooned, and and there were years when you had up to a million people coming in during that period.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, after a while, people said, uh, uh, and and there were debates about this, of course, but people said, well, these levels are too high. Some people didn't like the changing uh, ethnic composition of the country, Um, But a lot of people didn't like the fact that uh, it it was hard to organize workers and it was hard to get decent wages for workers when you had flooded labor markets with all these immigrants Mm -hmm. coming in. So the American Federation of Labor, for instance, uh, took a strong stand that immigration should be reduced. And so in the early 1920s, you had uh, several laws passed which drastically cut back on immigration. And that then ushered in four or five decades in the middle part of the last century when we averaged about 200,000 immigrants annually. And so this was a period of low immigration. Um, It was also the period of the flowering, the growth of the US labor movement. And a lot of us think there's a connection there. Uh, Tighten up labor markets, Mm -hmm. it's easier to organize workers. Uh, So we had a period of, of relatively low immigration. Then in 1965, Congress passed a, a new immigration bill, which began to expand immigration again. And, and over time, uh, since 1965, we've started to increase the numbers. Uh, until today, as I said, uh, legal immigration into the US is about 1.1 million annually. When you put in illegal immigration along with that, you start getting into absolute numbers of one and a quarter to one and a half million annually. And so that's where we are today. Uh, And again, at that rate of immigration, we are on track for perpetual rapid growth in the United States.
0: Mm -hmm. You said that most Americans, study after study and poll after poll, show that, that Americans overwhelmingly want less or stable immigration. Then you talk about who's benefiting from this. It's certainly not poor people themselves, right? Because unskilled workers are severely affected in a negative way from mass immigration, right?
1: That's right. Um, You know, if you ask who who benefits from current immigration levels, uh, there's several different groups. One is immigrants themselves coming in, They, they benefit. Uh, whether they're poor or or more highly skilled and, and wealthier, um, and then uh, the wealthy members of our society benefit because uh, they can have lower prices on goods and services, uh, but they can also benefit through the fact that uh, you know if you're a, a business owner, I interviewed many business owners for the the uh, book. Uh, you mm-hmm. can you can increase your profits by driving down your labor costs. Or if you're a wealthy person who, get most, who gets most of your money from your stocks, uh, then again, you're not so worried about salaries, wages going down. You're, you're fine with that because you're getting most of your money from uh, a rapidly growing economy and an increasing values in your, in your stock holdings. So really, the two groups that benefit the most from the current regime are immigrants coming in and wealthier members of our society the groups that lose tend to be those people who depend on wages or salaries for the bulk of their earnings and so the middle class and especially poorer americans are getting uh, hurt the most from this the way the U- and, and the us is kind of different in the mix of immigrants we take in compared to let's say canada or australia mm-hmm. canada and australia take in much higher numbers of uh, percentages rather of engineers, doctors, uh, people who are going to be competing more with wealthier members of our society. The U.S. takes in the bulk of our immigrants uh, are people with less education, fewer skills, and so they're competing, you know, not so much with me, the college professor, they're competing more with the waiter, Mm -hmm. the janitor, the person uh, cleaning the rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So what that means is, the people in our society who are least able to, to deal with that competition, who, who it makes the most difference if their wages are driven down, are getting uh, hurt the most by it.
0: And it sounds as if African Americans really take a hit, um, according to some of the studies that you mentioned, that, um, is it Borjas, this person's name? Who did a study. Yeah,
1: George uh, George Borjas has, has done some studies on that. He's uh, an economist at Harvard who uh, is considered one of the, the leading uh, researchers in this. Another person who studied it is uh, Steve Shulman, the, the former chair of our econ department here at Colorado State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these kind of studies tend to show that um, African Americans are particularly vulnerable to the kinds of immigration that we have today. And it, it sort of makes sense because Afri- African Americans as a group tend to be less educated, uh, have fewer skills than, uh, than white workers. So they tend to be in more direct competition with, with larger numbers of immigrant workers. Now, you know, I should emphasize that none of this, uh, whether we're talking about the economics of it or the environmental aspects, uh, I, I'm not so much trying to develop an argument that all immigration is bad. Right. It's it, it's more of an argument that the levels of immigration matter, and the kinds of immigration, and so we should pay a lot of attention to that. And uh, and again, just simply recognize the trade-offs here. It, it might be that at at, at at the end of the day, people want to continue having large numbers of immigrants coming in who are less skilled and less educated maybe we want to help those people but if that's the case then you really have to look at what that's doing to poor americans in the united states and and before you pat yourself on the back for supporting continued mass immigration you should really ask yourself well how is it impacting me is it is it really costing me anything mm-hmm. or am i benefiting from this
0: and you also made the point, this was very interesting to me, that if you keep bringing in people with low skills who are willing to work, you know, who are over a barrel, as you describe it, uh, by their employers because they don't have the same rights, maybe there are language problems, um, and they really uh, need those jobs. If you keep bringing in people to do that work, then there isn't the impetus or the commitment to improving inner city schools where uh, a lot of african americans are students right because you know you just kind of lead, let them languish and you get your your employees elsewhere
1: sure and and it sort of makes sense right i mean if i am uh, the head of a tech startup okay and uh, and I can just go to India, let's say, and bring in 100 workers who are well-trained and probably uh, uh, at the higher end of, of the educational attainment spectrum for India. If I could just go in and, and poach those 100 people, I could do it relatively quickly. And, uh, and I really don't have to worry necessarily if there are large numbers of people in my society who are sort of getting bypassed by uh, the opportunities that, that are opening up in tech. Mm-hmm. But let's say I can't go to India for, for all those workers. Well, then all of a sudden I have to start looking at groups that I've been ignoring so far. Uh, it could be that instead of just firing people once they get to be 45 or 50 because they're too old, I start to say, oh, you know, this person has some some training and, and some knowledge that is worth, worth something to me. Mm-hmm. Or it could be that, I, I live in a community that, that uh, has lots of young people who are interested in this kind of work, but you know they haven't been getting the, the training that they need to prepare them for it. Well, all of a sudden, I've got, I've got a vested interest in seeing that they do get that training. Uh, so it's relatively clear that, that uh, if we can tighten up labor markets in this way, the labor and the potential labor of these groups of people will be worth more. Right. And that will benefit them. That'll benefit them. And I think it'll also benefit our society in the long run. You know, we, we hear an awful lot of talk on the progressive end of the political spectrum about growing economic inequality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you hear very little, uh, you see very little of people connecting some of the dots between mass immigration's contribution to growing economic inequality. Uh, And it it does that in a whole variety of ways, some of which we've been talking about, but some of which are so obvious you don't even really talk about it very much. I mean, one way that mass immigration increases economic inequality in the U.S. is, it just brings in large numbers of poor people,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and that increases inequality. Then you get those poor people competing against other poor people, and they stay poor.
0: Right, and it's not calling upon the wealthy in the U.S to help poor people in other countries. You're talk, you're calling upon the poor in the U.S. to, to take that hit, you know, in yeah, their, in and their own lives.
1: That's right, and, and uh, that just seems wrong to me. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm a supporter of generous foreign aid to, to help poor people in other countries. The U.S. is a wealthy country. We could do a lot more in those kind of areas, but what we should be doing is, is taxing the wealthy, and helping share some of that wealth and help people develop in other countries. Instead, what we're doing is sort of uh, the worst of both worlds. I mean, we're, we're, we're helping some people who can make it to this country, but we're, we're really doing it on the backs of the people who can least afford it. Right. And again, you know, often patting ourselves on the back about how generous we are. Uh, but it, it seems like a, a, a misguided policy to me.
0: And we're also, we're not talking about limiting refugees necessarily. I mean, you you talk about the UN agreements about other countries who are able to accept refugees, and that's an important thing. We're talking about more discretionary immigration, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And in the book, I I make that point. Um, I I basically propose to keep refugee and asylum numbers similar to what they have been in recent years. I think the figure I use is about Mm 150,000. And that's sort of in line with with where we've been. Um, The the majority of immigrants coming into the United States are coming in not as refugees or asylum seekers, but uh, as economic migrants. And there I think we have more discretion to uh, decide what the proper levels are
0: this focus on mass immigration and the acceptance of mass immigration, or at least a lot of it, is part of the eternal growth economy that this country has been fixed on for a long time. And um, you say in here that a rising tide does not float all boats. So there are some... Uh, mythologies that we have to get rid of in order to understand what's really going on. And I've always liked Ed Abbey's quote, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology (laughs) of the cancer cell.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yeah, he nailed it on that one. Yeah, Yeah, so,
0: I mean, what we're doing is we're creating social systems and immigration policies that are commensurate with a really bad economic idea, right? Well,
1: you know, I I think it's a bad economic idea, but I think at one point maybe it was a good economic idea. I mean, times change. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here as a beneficiary of 200 years of American growth in the United States, uh, economic growth in the United States. We're a wealthy country. We benefit in all sorts of ways from being citizens of a wealthy country. Uh, But the question has to be, will another 200 years of this work? And and I think clearly the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. We're running up against ecological limits. Uh, That's that's the most important point to emphasize here. I mean, there's sort of two things going on. One, I think we're wealthy enough now that we can live good lives. You know, being twice as wealthy is not necessarily going to help us live twice as good lives. So wealth is buying less well-being and improvement in our lives than it did 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. but the other the, the other half of it is the ecological systems that support our economic systems sort of breaking at the seams here although it it's not usually put that way i mean we we talk about climate change we talk about ocean acidification we talk about levels of pollution these kind of things and they're sort of presented as discrete problems and as if well you know if we just if we just change these Couple dozen policies, we get a handle on these issues, but but I see it a little differently. I think what it shows is the size and scale of our economy is pushing up against biophysical limits, Mm -hmm. and so we really need to get cracking on the next kind of economy we need, which is one in which we ratchet back our demands on the biophysical world instead of increasing them. Now that's easier said than done, but I think. It's the, it's the next big challenge facing us.
0: Well, you say it is hard to reduce your global ecological footprint with ever more feet. And since the U.S. does consume so much, and one would hope that we would learn not to do that, but no, it's, this is not an isolationist thing. Nobody benefits from having more Americans at this level of consumption. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I would I would make that argument. I mean, we make a significant contribution year in and year out to global climate change. We make a significant contribution to the drawdowns on global marine fisheries. Uh, we make a significant contribution to tropical deforestation with our use of uh, meat products and, and tropical forest products. So the world really can't afford more and more Americans. Now, you know, sometimes when I make this argument, people say, well, really, that's just an that's an argument for us continuing to to consume at at too high levels. Why? And I don't. Well, I mean, what they would say is you're saying we should stop growing the population instead of reducing consumption. And I would say, well, no, really, we we have to work on both of those things. Yeah. Our total numbers and our per capita consumption. If we can get both of those decreasing, then we can get greater decreases in the overall impacts of our consumption. And that, I think, would be would be the goal, because, again, I think we've got some pretty good evidence that we're pushing too hard yeah. on some of these global ecological limits.
0: And when you look, for example, at some of the disasters that we've had lately in the US, um, Houston, Florida, Puerto Rico, Um, I read about Houston that not only had they increased their sprawl and increased their population by huge amounts, but they had also, Texas had also, I think in 2011, cut its support for Planned Parenthood. And Mm -hmm. it makes it that much harder to evacuate (laughs) when, A, you're illegal uh, because you're afraid that someone's going to you know, and I know people say there's no such thing as an illegal person, but just strictly speaking, from a, an immigration law point of view, it's that much mm-hmm. harder to evacuate when you're afraid that it's going to lead to something even worse for you. It's also hard sure. to evacuate if, um, if you've got a lot of people who need to fit in the boat.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And at the same time, you know, Houston's been pouring more concrete left yeah. and right and filling in wetlands and, and doing all the things that are likely to make these kind of floods worse. So, again, you know, sometimes the answers to these things are relatively straightforward, but very hard. Um, we are enmeshed in a growth economy, uh, some places more than others, perhaps, but but all of us are, are part of that. And so... It's gonna be hard mm-hmm. to to turn that kind of thinking around and say, okay, you know our goal our goal isn't to add more jobs year after year or increase our consumption year after year or have more people year after year. Our goal has to be more to to fit in a little better to uh, to the landscape and and to the globe that we're we're part of, but you know I mean there there are compensations for that when i uh when I ask Students in a a class, let's say, or if I go to a Rotary Club and I I ask this question I'll I'll ask how many of you raise your hand if you think Colorado will be a better state Or Denver will be a better city to live in with twice as many people raise your hand if you believe that Very few hands. go
2: Yeah,
1: okay. How many how many of you think that it's going to be a worse place to live? (laughs) And almost everybody's hand goes up. So, you know at some level we understand that more isn't always mo better, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but we find it kind of hard to translate that into economic and public policy. But again, you know, I think I think that's our challenge,
0: and that so rarely takes into account even the loss of habitat, the loss of other species. I mean, we are in the sixth grade extinction. And the fact that uh, I think you mentioned in the book that about half of today's species will be extinct in the lifetimes of children who are living now, that is just not only a bad thing for the systems themselves and for our support through those systems, but it's just so terribly sad. And, And what do we get for that?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's sad and I would say it's unjust. It's yes. unjust to all those other other species. Uh we're driving them from their homes uh on the local level and then when you add up all these local and regional losses, we're actually driving these forms of life uh extinct. They'll they'll never be able to come back. It it's a great loss and it's uh it's something that we really have to We have to start taking it a lot more seriously than we have been. You know, again, a previous generation of of Americans and a previous Congress passed the Endangered Species Act, which committed this country to it had us say, look, if we've taken so much habitat, taken so many resources uh, so that species are on the edge of permanent extinction, we have to take steps to remedy that. We have to stop hunting them. We have to start giving them more habitat. We have to designate resources that are going to be available to them, et cetera. Now, that was a, a great commitment, and it's something we can really be proud of. But when we passed that law, I think it was in 1972, uh, we, didn't, we didn't quite understand that in order to keep these species on the landscape long term, you couldn't also have an endless growth economy getting mm-hmm. bigger and bigger and bigger well okay fast forward fifty sixty years from now. now we understand that we are not going to be able to end all these extinctions and keep these these species with us uh, the wolves, the grizzly bears the 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 birds uh on and on and on we're not going to keep them with us if we just keep scaling up our own presence because there's only one earth and And the single largest cause of species extinction is habitat loss.
2: Right.
1: So we we have to make some choices there. Scale ourselves up and say goodbye to all those other species or, you know, accept. I mean, I'm I'm not saying we have to disappear. I'm I'm just saying, you know, let's accept that, that we've taken a fair amount already and try to make do with that. Maybe even start to find ways to give some back. But not keep taking more and more and more at a very basic level, I think people get that. Mm-hmm. They get that there's something wrong with people taking everything and driving other species extinct.
0: well then why aren't environmental organizations stepping up and and they used to like you know the famous sierra there was the Sierra Club uh, talked about population, talked about immigration. Um, and then it became verboten even to mention it. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, sure, because I think it's a very important part of this whole story. If you go back again to the dawn of the environmental movement, late 60s, early 70s, population talk was everywhere. Look at the, the news accounts of the first Earth Day in 1970. Population, population, population. Uh, people just understood through the good work of Paul Ehrlich and others, Uh, They understood that part of creating uh, an ecologically sound society was limiting population growth and and eventually ending population growth. Mm -hmm. Because as long as you've got a certain amount of growth, you're just going to have more and more people over time. Right. So people got that, and there was a lot of support for family planning, abortion rights, all of the various ways in which uh, you can help to have fewer people. Now, what happened in the United States is kind of complicated. Things got tied in with abortion issues. They got tied in with partisan politics. Uh, In some cases, I think people people thought that the problem had been solved and so they moved on to other things. But the most important thing that happened in the United States and, and a lot of Western countries is this. When the environmental movement began around 1970, the main driver of population growth in the U.S. was uh, the number of children we were having. Mm -hmm. And people were relatively comfortable saying, okay, we, we need to have fewer children. But over time, fertility levels dropped in the United States, and the main driver became immigration. And then, in order to argue for a stable population, you had to you had to start focusing on the need to reduce immigration. Now, as you say, in the 70s, even through the 80s, up into the early 90s, it was official Sierra Club policy that, yes, we should limit immigration so that it's not driving U.S. population growth. But it was just part of the thing. Well, as immigration got more and more, it became more and more important, Uh, people became less and less comfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. And... So it was really in the 1990s that the Sierra Club and groups like Zero Population Growth decided we have to run away from this issue. We can't talk about immigration anymore. It's too polarizing. People are gonna call us racist. And, um, and we had huge fights over that, but those of us who wanted to, to hold fast to the idea that you needed to limit population growth, uh, we lost those fights. And so uh, we had a decade or two of, of the groups just stepping away from immigration. Now the next turn of the wheel in the last couple of years, groups like the Sierra Club have actually come out in favor of uh, bills in Congress that would increase immigration. Why? So now it's not, even, it's not even that they're neutral anymore. Well, it's, be, it's about coalition building. The Sierra Club says we want to get together with the immigrants' rights groups. We want them to support us on climate change legislation. In order to get that, we have to say, we're going to support you on the immigration bill that you like. So what you get is a sort of coalition politics. And uh, yeah, so, so several environmental groups have actually come out in favor of, of more immigration. It's, it's about as far from a sane environmental policy as you could get, I think, but uh, but that's the way things have evolved.
0: You have a chart in the book that's really interesting. Uh, the the major countries from whom the U.S. gets immigrants and what their ecological footprint is when they're there and what it is when they're here. And it just skyrockets, right? Because, I mean, these people, want they're not coming here to be poor, you know, and, and they're going to work their butts off, and they want to establish a more comfortable life, you know, the American dream. So it's not as if it's just moving people around, um, you know, it doesn't matter if they're there or if they're here, once you get here, because of the way our system is structured, like you have to have a car, we have lousy public transportation, whatever,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, it just it just, in, it deepens our, our ecological debt, right?
1: That's true, yeah. Um... <laughs> and, and, you know, often when you, when you make these kind of arguments, people will say, um, they'll say, uh, well, look, immigration just moves people from one place to another. It's, it's, it's not important. What's important is the total numbers of people. But as you point out, uh, another thing immigration does, if it's immigration into the U S is it tends to really increase people's individual and family consumption levels. So for instance, uh, if you look at at uh, the average footprint of someone from Mexico compared to someone in the United States, when that person moves to the United States, their footprint increases about 350 percent, something like that. Uh, if you're moving from Vietnam to the United States, it's an even greater increase. Mm-hmm. And as you say, people people are not moving to the United States to stay poor. They're they're moving here precisely because they can consume more.
0: You are a product of immigration, right? When did your mm-hmm. family come oh, here? Oh, sure.
1: Uh, they came here two and three generations ago, yeah. Okay,
0: and you said from Italy and so, Greece?
1: From Italy and Greece, yeah. I have Where one in Greece?
2: Italian,
1: uh, well, it's, it, I, I, I'm i blanking on the name of the island. It's a little teeny island that's like mostly volcano <laughs> off the uh, off the Turkish coast awesome and uh, I've seen I've seen pictures of it and I understand why Grandpa left because <laughs> it must have been very hard to be a farmer on this island um, you know
0: I have Greek relatives too my grandfather was a Greek shepherd in the Peloponnese is that true yeah yeah Wow and then wow. my uh, my mother's mother was from Germany and my father came over on the boat when he was very young. So, Mm -hmm. and I have to qualify this by saying I tried to emigrate back to Europe just because, just because. So it's not as if I'm saying, well, I'm here and nobody else can come because I didn't want to be here either. But what do you say to people who say, well, you've got yours. And so now you just don't want anybody else to to have the same thing.
1: Yeah. uh, What I say to that is I, I have to think like a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um it's true I've got mine but but I also have to ask what's best for the society I live in what's best for the planet that I live on um and in both cases uh what's best is not ever more Americans um you know if I was just thinking about myself I wouldn't take up this issue at all because you know when you start talking to your progressive friends about the need to reduce immigration you you can get some pretty strange looks from people.
0: Have you gotten any hate mail?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, I've gotten hate mail. I've gotten hate mail from both sides because I've I've written about uh, a lot of different aspects of population, so I've gotten hate mail from the right. Uh, most of that came after Alex Jones gave uh, a little news account about this crazy professor at Colorado State University who says that to deal with climate change, people should all kill themselves. <laughs> and so you know after that i started i, I didn't know what info wars was before uh-huh. any of any of that and and all of a sudden i'm getting these really obnoxious messages uh from you know people across the country somewhere well, he's uh, a
0: very close reader
1: yeah i mean he, he, he found what he wanted to find in, in that particular article he was talking about but uh-huh. you know i've gotten it from the right and then uh And then from the left, uh, there are just lots of people who can't can't fathom the idea that you'd want to limit immigration for anything other than racial reasons. Yeah. And um, you know, I try to explain what those other reasons are, and and often, you know, people people get it. People, especially, you know, if they if they care about the environment, they understand that more people make more demands. At some level, they understand that if you flood labor markets, you're going to hurt poorer workers. Most people get it, but some people still give you the fisheye.
0: So let's talk about your proposals because you actually have some suggestions for ways to move ahead and to have more environmental responsibility as well as responsibility to our fellow citizens and to the rest of the world. So could we talk about some of those?
1: Sure, sure. Um... You know, the most important point is just that I think the overall numbers have to come down. Mm -hmm. So in my book, I say, okay, legal immigration today is about one point one million. My proposal is to cut it back to three hundred thousand, which is the level that it was at 60 and 70 years ago. Uh, I also have some proposals in there to uh, to make it harder for people to immigrate here illegally. And that mostly involves drying up the jobs magnet. So, for instance, there's a proposal to mandate the use of the federal e-verify system for all new hires in the United States. And then uh, I also say, though, that uh, as part of dealing with this whole problem, I think people who have lived in this country for a long time, uh, I think we should have an amnesty for those mm-hmm. people. So those regularize. would be like,
0: like the dreamers that people are talking about a lot now. They've never known any other country. Well, or
1: the dreamers, but I, I would probably broaden it to include uh, you know, people who've been here. If you've been here for 10 years or something and you've been paying taxes, etc., uh, I think we've been so lax in enforcing our immigration laws that there's almost an expectation that it's okay for them to be here. So, you know, I would probably look for an amnesty for 4 or 5 million of the 12 million people who are here illegally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and, and when I say that, some of my friends who want to reduce immigration, give me the fish eye for that. But I I think there's a good case to be made that that's the right thing to do as well. Uh, And then I think we uh, we could do a lot more to increase foreign aid and better target foreign aid so that it helps people live good lives in the countries that they're actually in. Because really, you know, it's no answer to the great poverty and injustice that people suffer in many parts of the world to say, well, you, know, you can all just come to the United States or mm-hmm. you can all come to Germany. Mm-hmm. I and mean, the reality is uh, Central America can't all come to the United States and, and Sub-Saharan Africa can't all come to Germany.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: not gonna work. Those places have to create just and uh, sustainable countries with opportunities for their citizens. They also have to stabilize their populations they can't just keep offloading surplus populations into other parts of the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's all kind of an interconnected system. But the first thing we have to do in the United States is get our own house in order. And that means stabilizing our population and uh, and finding ways to uh, create a more economically just policies in the United States.
0: And you also talk about trade agreements that... For example, a lot of the Central and South American countries that are sending a lot of their people here have been in cahoots with U.S. trade agreements. Um, can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Uh, this is an area that I'm, I'm no expert in, uh, but it, it's pretty well understood that as countries have made trade agreements in, in recent years, the goal has been to increase trade. And there have been good sort of neoliberal economic arguments for why that's a a wonderful, beneficial thing. Uh, My suggestion is is simply that uh, we start thinking about these in a different way. And, for instance, uh, bring environmental issues into these trade agreements in a much more central way. So there are great environmental benefits when people feed themselves with food that's grown closer to home. Uh, you know, you cut way back on the transportation costs and the the carbon emissions that go along with with long distance transport. So it really doesn't make sense to make a trade agreement with Mexico, for instance, which says, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna rationalize the agricultural sector in Mexico. We're gonna throw millions of people off the land. They're gonna need jobs. A lot of them will probably wind up coming to the United States,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we're just gonna further entrench a sort of industrialized agricultural system that isn't, isn't good for us environmentally. And, and Americans are very aggressive in pushing this all around the world, on poor developing countries, right. on European countries that do a better job of, of keeping a more traditional agriculture. I mean, if, if you think about it for a second, a country like Italy or a country like France, you have some of the best food in the world there. Yes. You have, you have beautiful agricultural landscapes that are so beautiful that people come from around the world to vacation in them. They vacation in Tuscany or Provence. And so people seem to have found a way to live in, in a certain amount of harmony with nature, keep a lot of farmers working on that landscape, grow food and, and make food that's, that's wonderful. And then American trade negotiators come in and say, you know, this is all wrong. <laughs> what you really have to do is just bring in industrial agriculture, right. grow two or three main things, have big fields and big tractors like we do, have a few owners and a lot of poor agricultural workers, not smaller, I mean, on and on.
0: And with but GMOs, sort of, of course. Sense.
1: With GMOs, yeah. I mean, it all makes sense on a, on a certain paradigm of what agriculture should be. But we we understand that uh, there are good reasons to reject that paradigm.
0: From my experience in, in knowing people who are immigrants, and also having immigrants in my family, I don't think people take lightly the prospect of uprooting themselves from their families, from their cultures, from the food they love, from their music, from their celebrations. There's a real loss in that. And so if we could focus on helping people in their own countries, I know that's a really kind of idealistic generalization, but there, there are other ways to do this.
1: There are. And, and, you know, it's idealistic, but it's the right kind of ideals. Uh, because as you say, I mean, there are always going to be adventurers out there and, and people who go to a new place simply for the adventure of it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that my interviews with immigrants confirmed is, is exactly what you said. There are a lot of losses when you when you leave your native country, and there's a lot of loneliness and, and missing things. People do it for the most part because they really don't feel like they have good opportunities or any opportunities sometimes in the countries where they live. Uh, the answer to that, again, is not for everybody to move to a few countries that get it right. The answer is greater rights, greater economic opportunities for people uh, where they're where they're born. Uh, part of that is is structural, political, and economic changes in those countries. Uh, another component of it is people in those countries moving more quickly to lower fertility rates.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. Some countries like Guatemala or Honduras in in Central America still have quite high fertility rates. So, you know, even if they weren't corrupt and dangerous places, uh, even if there was a greater sharing of the wealth there, there simply aren't going to be enough jobs for all the people who are coming of age in those countries. And so, again, that's something that, that we can help with that. We can maybe provide family planning assistance. But it's, uh, it's something that people in those countries have to take on themselves.
0: And as far as people in this country, you suggest that we have to start living with limits.
1: It could change our thinking in all kinds of ways, but I think we just sort of have to start taking that more seriously. Uh, Years ago, I I worked for the Park Service up at Glacier National Park in Montana. Mm. And uh, there had been a uh, park superintendent there who had put in a, as a policy that the, the total amount of pavement in the park was not going to increase. So he said, you know, look, if we think we need a parking lot somewhere here in this park, we have to commit to taking out an equal amount of pavement somewhere else. Hmm. That was, you know, it seems like a relatively small thing, but, but think about how that might change your view. Of things. Uh, You're in that park, you get more more visitors year after year. If you simply say, look, we are not going to keep paving over more and more of this park, or eventually we're not going to have the park that we we wanted, well, you start thinking about things in a different way. You start saying, okay, maybe we have to have people using more buses and fewer individual cars. Maybe we're going to have to set limits to the total number of visitors each day. We don't know, but one way or the other, we're going to start appreciating that, at least in this park, it's not all about accommodating ever more people in the way that they're used to being accommodated. And I think we have to start bringing that kind of thinking into a lot more of our lives. Uh, that's why I got a vasectomy after my wife and I had our second child.
0: Good for you, Phil.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just one more snip for the cause, right? Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think that's important.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love how you describe in your book, you know, if you can continue to enjoy the river that you live near where you where you um, propose to your wife, where you have gone with your sons and and not have that river destroyed by other water so-called needs that are just assumed to take priority, then you could be a happy person. You could die a happy person.
1: That's right. That's right. And it's not as if I just want all that river to myself either. I, I want right. to share it with other people. I want to share it with people coming from other countries. Uh, I, I want to share it with the fish and the birds that live in it and on it. Um, it's not all just about me, Right. But, uh, but being able to connect up to wild nature, uh, that's, that's kind of an important part of a good human life, I think. Hopefully, we'll be able to keep that for, for future generations.
0: You know, I've lived in big cities, I grew up on a farm, but now I'm back on a farm and we live pretty low on the food chain. Economically, we don't we don't travel much, but just being able to be in the woods or in a field, you know, it's just and have, you know, my neighbor come by with his team of Percheron draft horses because he's getting them ready for the haying season, you know. That to me is just, it's just heaven. I don't need much more than that. And I think if people could find what really speaks to them, you don't have to fill that hole with as much consumer stuff and and, uh, as much frenetic activity. That's my view anyway.
1: Oh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, Maria. And, you know, that's, we've been talking today primarily about population, but there's a whole other aspect to this. Which you just touched on, the consumption aspect. And I think you're right there to say that, uh, you know, there, there are other things that we can find to put in place of just more consumption that we'll often find more enjoyable and more meaningful than more consumption.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that, again, is, is another great challenge for us. We live in a consumer society. You know, not everyone can move off to a farm. So we're going to have to find ways to put together good lives, whether we're living in cities or suburbs or on farms that aren't just about more and more consumption. So that's that's absolutely a part of this.
0: What would you say to people who are listening about where they can start with this issue of population, immigration, consumption, the whole combo platter here?
1: Well, you know, I think there are some good places to go to to learn more about this I mean I'm of course a partisan for my own book Uh, how many is too many the progressive argument for reducing immigration into the United States so
0: which is excellent
1: thank you Uh, you could buy that book and and uh, take a look at that sort of argument there there's uh, there's an organization that I'm connected up with numbers USA which makes some of these connections between population growth and uh, and the environment um, there are a lot of good resources, good books, and websites out there about consumer issues. You know, one of my favorite books on that is a book that Bill McKibben published a little over 10 years ago mm-hmm. called Deep Economy. And that is just such a wonderful book because it looks very specifically at our economic lives and ways in which we can turn them from being about generating more wealth and more consumption into generating connection and understanding of our communities, generating relationships with the people around us, generating appreciation for the world through economic life. And so I think that's a wonderful uh, source. I'd I'd also encourage people to get involved with groups uh, like the Audubon Society, which help connect you up to wild nature Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood. Uh, The Audubon Society, we're talking about connecting up with birds, but there are many different ways to connect up to nature. And that's a whole other aspect of this, which I think is is very important. To, to get out from behind our screens and spend more time out in the woods, out, out uh, on the prairies, uh, connecting up and appreciating what's out there. That's an important part of all this, too.
0: Yes. And I will have links to your book and to these other resources on you know, in the show notes. How Many is Too Many is a wonderful book, and thank you for writing it. As I say, it's, it's so clear. You can tell that you're a philosopher because you, you make your argument so clearly, and it's so humane. And uh, I'd love to talk with you sometime about Thoreau, too.
1: Oh, let's, let's do that. I would love to talk. I'm always up for talking about Henry. That would be wonderful, Maria. It's been, it's been great talking yeah. with you.
0: Well, it's been great talking with you, Phil, and thank you so much. Thanks to Phil Cafaro, and thank you for listening. I totally recommend Phil's book, How Many is Too Many. There's a link in the show notes. And this is the last episode for 2017. We'll be back in January after I clear out my head a bit. You can catch up with our two dozen episodes, and you can subscribe at www.TheBigChewPodcast.com. Bye for now.